Good morning. What a joy. Y'all have a great time in children's worship. Hey, y'all, my name is Chris. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's a real privilege to be with you this morning, gathered by God's word to hear God's word and respond in faith and praise. We are in the middle of the beginning of, really, a series that will take us through a lot of the year. We'll take some breaks uh, in the book of Genesis. And we are still in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read a little bit of Genesis chapter 2 this morning as well. So if you would turn your bulletins or your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read verses 26 to 31. And then we will read Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then to Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Great God in heaven, what a joy it is to be here this morning as your gathered people, to hear your word proclaimed. Father, we couldn't know you if you hadn't spoken to us and shown us yourself. You've done that in all of creation sufficient to render us 
without excuse, and yet you have done it savingly in your holy word, most of all in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we pray now that as we attend to this word that was breathed out by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is here among us now would help us, that I would speak truly and clearly and boldly and with great joy and comfort of the things of Christ, and that we all would see and treasure him, our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. I love the book of Genesis, and I love Genesis 1 and 2, and one of the reasons I love it so much is that I wake up a lot of mornings wondering what the heck to do with my life. And it's an amazing gift of God that he has told us how he made us, that in this holy book breathed out by the Holy Spirit, we have an account of God's design for us as humans. There is an instruction manual. The schematics are there, the blueprint of our life. And so if we pay attention to how we are designed, we can actually learn a great deal about what it is to wake up and live as a human in this world. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, God is not simply an architect who sets it up and then walks away and sees what happens. God is the chief actor in history and the playwright of all that happens. And so not only do we need to understand our design in Genesis chapter 1, but we need to understand our place in God's story. We understand where we are and what God's doing in this time and place. And to the extent that we understand both those things, our design and our place in God's big story, we can learn a great deal about ourselves. And to the extent we don't, we misunderstand or we don't see clearly, things get a little wonky and haywire. What I want us to do this morning is to think about our life and one particular aspect of it, which is our life in work. This is, on the one hand, a very practical sermon, hopefully, and also, as sometimes happens, somewhat theological, too. So, um, but my hope is that it's mostly practical. What is it? Most of our time as adults, or much of our time, is spent working. And we want to think about what the Bible has to say about that activity. And here, I want us to, from the very beginning, have an imagination that sees work more broadly than simply our careers. You don't have to be paid to be working. Many folks work a lot without getting paid. Um, But what we're doing with our life, what are we laboring at in our life, and what does God have to say about it? If we sit back and observe our attitudes towards work, there are two very different but at least in my experience, very prevalent attitudes. One is a negative view, and I, I, both of these live inside of me. The negative view says work is a necessary evil. I have to work, or rather not, it's unpleasant, and my goal in working is to not work. This is, this is an attitude that we all share somewhere deep down inside of us, and some people, this is their main attitude towards work. Working for the weekend, right? I'm working so that I can pay for the things that I really want to do. I have to work. I wish I didn't have to work. And the the hope, the goal, right, would be that maybe you wouldn't have to work. Whether that's retirement or making a lot of money and sitting down, work is evil, sort of. Okay, so that's that negative view, all right? And at the same time, there's a really positive view of work that also lives inside of me, and I suspect inside of many of you, which sees work as this really core thing to who we are as people and this really important aspect of our lives if we're going to be fulfilled and have joy in it. It's a source of identity and meaning. What we do matters a great deal. 
from this comes overwork and workaholism and all those errors. But both those views are out there. And both of them, I think, live inside each of us at different points in time. Sometimes one more than the other, but sometimes both. Because guess what, guys? We are inconsistent from time to time in the way that we do life. We think life will be good when I don't have to work. And we also think life will be good when I have the great job, the perfect job. And, and those things we bounce back and forth between. Okay. Hopefully you, you hear some of your own internal murmuring about work in those two themes. What I want to do this morning as we look at Genesis 1 and 2 is interrogate those things and use them to structure our exploration of this text. Because both views get something right, but also get something very wrong. And as we look at this God's design for us and our place in his story, we're going to see where that goes haywire. And we're also, hopefully, going to be able to see a window into the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's my goal this morning as we look at this text, okay? Here's an outline if you're taking notes. We're going to look at the negative view of work first, then the positive view, and then the gospel view. Fairly simple, hopefully. The negative view, the positive view, and the gospel view. So first, the negative view. What's wrong with seeing work as a necessary evil, something that I have to do but wish I didn't? Well, simply put, if we look at Genesis 1 through 2, the testimony of the Bible is that work is, in fact, a necessary good. It's the complete opposite. In making humans, God made us for a task. He hired us immediately to a job. We see this both in the Genesis 1 text and the Genesis 2 text. In Genesis 1, God makes us and then immediately gives us this commission. We're made in his image and then commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to subdue it and to have dominion over the creatures. Kelly last week talked about the image of God and that was a massive idea to tackle in one sermon. And as he mentioned, really we're going to be thinking about the image of God for several sermons. And one aspect of that image bearing gets to this task-based reality that God, when he made us in his image and commissioned us to rule and have dominion over the earth he had just created, God is making us his representatives in this world. If you went around the ancient world and you could still do this at archaeological sites, these great empires would spread over great distances. The Roman Empire is probably the one that first comes to mind, but there were lots before that. And the emperor would do two things when he conquered a foreign place. The first is that he would put a statue of himself in that place, right? If you go to like an autocratic country, you'll see pictures of the president or the dictator on the wall everywhere. That's the same idea, right? Saying, this is mine. My image is here. I'm not physically here, but my image is here. This is, this is my dominion. The second thing they would do is set up a governor, so Pontius Pilate's the one we're probably most familiar with. Pontius Pilate sat in Jerusalem to rule as the image of Caesar. That was his job. And so when God says he makes us in his image, that's a piece of what is going on. God takes Adam and Eve, makes creation, and then puts an image of himself there to rule it. He hires us. And Genesis 2 picks this up. It makes it clear that God put Adam in the garden with a purpose. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. 
I wish we could spend more time on that language. There's agricultural ideas there, and there's priestly ideas there, and the, the garden as a temple is a fascinating... I think we talked about that already. We'll talk about it again. Not today. But the idea is that God puts the man in the garden with a purpose, to work, with a job, commissioned. We call this the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, that when God makes us, he hires us. Y'all got that? And all this, God says in verse 31 of chapter 1, is very good. The fall has not yet happened. And what that means is that our work has its origins in the very good design of God. The negative view misses that. If we just say that work is a necessary evil, we tend to think work arises after the fall, but it's not. Work's not a product of the fall. Work's a product of God's original good design. The pain and suffering of work is real. And when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we'll read about the curse. And one of the, the fascinating aspects about the curse in Genesis 3 is that it curses both of those aspects. Of There's pain in childbirth for women. To be fruitful and multiply is not going to be very pleasant anymore. And there's toil and futility in the labor to care for the ground. So work is good, and yet it's gone bad. That's the biblical understanding. It's not that work is bad in itself. Work ultimately was good. Our complaints against work aren't about work itself, but about the effects of sin on that work. And thus, our hope is not in a workless life. We see this um, in the despair of unemployment. Workless life is not actually a very fulfilling thing. We also see it in, if you've ever been on a long vacation in about two or three days or weeks in, you're itching to go do something and wondering what the heck your life is about. That's this thing, right? We were made to work. The challenges of retirement show this as well. Okay, that's the first thing to see in Genesis 1 and 2. Work is good, and it was made good, and we as people were made to work. It's not an evil. Okay, Charlottesville has some of that negative view. In fact, there's a lot of that negative view in our waters. Um, people vacation in the place that we get to live. Some of y'all here today are here on vacation. Uh, we get to live here, which is really, really cool, right? We've, many of us have moved to Charlottesville for quality of life, right? Some of us have retired to Charlottesville. It is a place that you come to enjoy life outside of work. We need to reckon personally with the fact that we live in a resort community, and what does that mean for us as people who were designed to be workers? It's an important question. And for those with means, Charlottesville is a very comfortable place. It's a place where we can insulate ourselves from a lot of the things that are hard about work in the fall. But, be that as it may, Charlottesville also has a very positive view of work. What I'm going to say is a too positive, well, not too positive, but a misshapen positive view of work. Right? which sees work not simply as something to be avoided, but something where we're going to find our deepest fulfillment in life and purpose and meaning. And to show us this, I want to steal uh, some ideas from an article in The Atlantic by a guy named Derek Thompson. This is a 2019 article, and he, the title of the article is, is, is wonderful. The Religion of Workism is Making Americans Miserable. He introduces this word workism as an alternative religion and he has some really thoughtful things to say about it. I don't think this guy is a Christian, or I don't have any reason to think he is. I hope he is. Um, he observes 
the character of work over time. And here's what he says. The economists of the early 20th century, and these folks are people who predicted a 15-hour work week in the 21st century, said eventually technology is going to let us not work. Right? They did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and middle class, work would remain a necessity, but for the college-educated elite, it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. He goes on to say that observing college students, and we have college students here, and this doesn't go away, right? That for college students thinking about what to do in life, anything, this is a quote, anything short of finding one's vocational soulmate means a wasted life. So our attitude towards work, especially in these elite professional contexts of the late 20th and early 21st century that we find ourselves in and that a lot of this church lives in, work has stopped just being something we have to do and actually started to be core to who we are as people. You can see this in the way college students approach finding a job. You can see it in the way tech firms recruit. If you go out to Silicon Valley, there are these campuses, right, where you can you can have an apartment, you can go to yoga class, you can have free snacks, you can do it all on your workplace, right? Which, for some reason, we're dumb enough to think that sounds like a really great idea, when in fact it's just like the, it's the, it's the factory towns of 100 years ago with some shine on them and some free Kit Kat bars, right? But the, the idea is that we're, the, these workplaces are promising that, that you're going to find your life in this, in this perfect job, right? And we see this happen to us in our, in our careers. I, some of y'all know this. I was a lawyer before I went to seminary, and I was a lawyer for long enough to kind of understand what was going on and short enough not to hate my job. Um, so I left before I hated it. So I actually have fond memories of being a lawyer. But one of the troubling things about being a lawyer, um, as a young lawyer, was looking at the older lawyers, and um, there are some wonderful older lawyers in this congregation whom I love. But I was, I was doing... <laughs> I was doing transactional law in oil and gas. So what I was doing was helping people buy and sell billions of dollars worth of energy stuff. Okay? Now... Uh, my kids are starting to think about what they want to do with their lives. And I can assure you that there's not a child in this congregation who writes on their first grade sheet, I want to be the best oil and gas lawyer in Texas when I grow up. Okay? Nobody does that. And yet, there were scores of 60-year-old men at my law firm who found great purpose and meaning and pride, and we were prideful, in being the best transactional lawyers in the oil and gas space in the whole world, right? How does that happen? How does it go from, I want to be a fireman, right, to I want to, I want to write 100-page transactional documents, and that's going to make my life fulfilling and wonderful? Well, it happens because that's all they were doing, right? Because our jobs become all-consuming, and we're looking, we're looking for meaning and purpose somewhere, and that's a pretty good place to start. All right. Where is that all coming from? Now back to the Bible. I want to suggest something maybe surprising. I think it comes right here from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And 
I think that the lawyers and the college students and you and me are getting something really right about the nature of work, even if we need to have something more to the story. Here's, here's the theologically challenging part of the sermon. So um, wake up for a second and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go back to fun in just a minute. Okay, so this is actually really fun. This is one of my favorite topics in the Bible. Okay, um, if we look at Genesis 1, if we look at Eden, um, work isn't just a nice way to have a fulfilled life. We were made for work. Work is good. To be human is to work. That's true. But it functions in an additional way in this relationship between God and Adam. Work is a command. The first thing God says to us in Genesis chapter 1 is work. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. God didn't just say to Adam and Eve, here's a cool place. Stay here as long as you like. Just don't eat that tree and we'll be good. Enjoy yourself. God creates Adam and Eve and says, you got work to do. Okay? I'll see that. We call that covenant relationship, the covenant of works. Adam and Eve were told to do something, and they were also told not to do something. We see that at the end of our our passage in chapter 2. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, God says. Don't eat that tree. There's a, there's a sanction, a threat attached to breaking God's law, and there's an implied promise here in the tree of life that's brought out more clearly in the rest of scriptures, and we'll talk about this in two weeks, that there was life and blessing promised to Adam and Eve if they fulfilled their calling. Um, Herman Bavink, who's a Dutch theologian that if you're slightly interested in theology, you should read, says this, Adam in the garden did not yet possess the highest humanity, but rather stood at the beginning of his career. Obedience under this covenant was his road to heavenly blessedness. Adam and Eve weren't placed in eternal bliss to start. They were placed in a garden that was perfect with a job to do and blessing attached if they did it well and threat if they did not. Y'all see that? The promise was life upon condition of perfect obedience. Now the creation mandate, Adam's job, was our job as well, right? Completed and do it. But if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, we see he failed. And it's, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, and I won't pre-do that sermon. But the fall is basically Adam failing to do what God told him to do in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because there's a snake in the garden, a creature he's supposed to have dominion over, also a creature who's telling lies, who he's supposed to kill and get rid of, and instead he bows down and worships, right? Completely reversing what he was supposed to do in Genesis chapter 1. He gets fired from his job when he's kicked out of Eden. Okay, that's some big biblical theological framework. Now, back to the idea of workism and this, this instinct we have to find our identity in work. I want to suggest that when we do that, the thing that Google's recruiting is playing with, the thing that's playing on the hearts of lawyers at Vincent and Elkins at Houston, the thing that's playing in your heart is ultimately related to something deep and designed about you, which is that Adam woke up into this world with a job to do and a promise of blessing if he did it. If Adam and Eve were to have reward and blessing, they needed to work hard. 
and work faithfully and work successfully. The answer here is not to say, don't idolize your work. The answer here is actually to say something slightly more nuanced. Um, I've, I'm, I'm reaching my quota of Disney illustrations for the month or the series, so forgive me. But the picture here that I think is the best I can come up with, so um, again, forgive me, uh, Buzz Lightyear <laughs> in Toy Story, which was a movie in the 90s, right? That's kept going. Um, Buzz Lightyear is a, a toy, but he wakes up. Uh, toys have sentience in this, this world, right? But he wakes up from hypersleep uh, on Andy's bed. And if you remember that scene, if you don't, I'll describe it for you. He's, he's a funny Tim Allen character, and he's trying to contact Star Command, right? And he says this, has this line that's programmed into him. I'm stationed in the Gamma Quadrant of Sector 4 as a member of the Elite Universe Protection Unit of the Space Ranger Corps. I protect the galaxy from the threat of invasion from the evil Emperor Zerg, sworn enemy of the Galactic Alliance. Buzz Lightyear wakes up into the world looking for Zerg and trying to do his job, Okay. You and I wake up each morning programmed to go out and work hard so that we can get blessing. That's the way God made us. That's Adam in us. Theologian Michael Horton, who is my seminary professor, has this great line. He calls it the internal alarm clock of covenant consciousness. That we are programmed rightly to see our work result in blessing. And all of us are doing that in one way or another when we wake up in the morning and get to work. The problem, though, is that, well, two, there's, there's a number of problems. One is that Adam already failed and got fired. And that because of that, we live in sin and are not very good workers. And so that task is a constant frustration. We can't receive the blessing working in that way, but we feel a great deal of burden to go do it. Y'all feel that? So, so you, you feel like you need to go be a perfect Googler, right, in order to find reward and salvation and blessing, and yet it's, it's not there. Before we move to our third point, I, I, just a caution for us. Um, I think churches in our tradition, and I know Trinity, we're good at that first point, recognizing that work is good. We have a fellows program that's designed to help Young people see that their work and their vocation are meaningful, and it's beautiful and wonderful. We have to be careful, though, not to baptize, then, our workism as a gospel pursuit in itself. Because your vocation is important, but it is not your means to salvation. And the Fellows Program knows that, and we know that, but it's, but it's easy to miss, right? We can, as these like hard-charging professionals, we can think, okay, I've got, a, I've got a vocation that matters and I'm going to go out and do it. And we end up just being little Adams and Eves who feel really burdened when we wake up in the morning and we go to bed at night. Okay, so what's the rest of the story? Third point, the gospel view. The biblical story helps us to see the errors of both attitudes. The negative view is wrong but understandable. Work is a part of God's very good design, but the curse has made it really hard. And so when we feel the sting and pain and toil, we're feeling something real. And the positive view is wrong but understandable too because faithful and fruitful work was the path to blessing, but that road has been blown up by our sin and it's not a way for us to go. 
together, as we bounce back and forth between those realities, the dominant experience is one of frustration and disappointment, which can describe many of our vocational lives. We want it to be great, and it's not. We feel like we need to go out and do this, but we can't. That's a hard place to be. Okay. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ help us? So we orient ourselves in the story of the Bible. We're not in Eden, but we're also not immediately after Eden either. We're here after the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Three things to close us out, and these are quick, but I think very important and beautiful. The first is this. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the work of Adam. The blessing that sat at the end of Adam's obedient working in the garden is exactly the blessing that Jesus Christ earned through his faithful and obedient life. Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, and he did it. What the law could not do, God did. Romans 3 says this, By works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ opens a new way to blessing. It's no longer that you wake up as Buzz Lightyear needing to find Zerg and kill him to find salvation. Jesus found Zerg and killed him. And we, through faith in him, can have access to that blessing. Our justification, knowing it, helps us to work because it takes away the burden. The stakes of your work and your labor in this world are no longer all of you. Your salvation is secure. You're taken care of. The blessing you're longing for is yours. It's in your possession. Now go work. And we'll talk about that in a second. Second, the work of Jesus now through the Holy Spirit is to be conformed to his image, which means that we are being conformed to the image of the good worker, of the second Adam who faithfully worked in this world, which means that work still matters, and actually, as we grow more and more like Jesus, we will find more and more success and satisfaction in the labors that he's called us to do in ruling and subduing this earth. For you to grow in sanctification, which is a big fancy word for you to be made more like God and Jesus, is actually to find more fulfillment, more success, more joy in your labors. Our instinct to build and to take what is chaotic and mean, bring order to it, our instinct to go buy land out in North Garden and make it beautiful, right? The the Wendell Berry thing that dwells up in our heart, that's a Christian thing. That's Jesus being formed in you that makes you want to go do the gardening work. It's not, it's not your salvation doesn't depend on it anymore, which is really important, but it's good. Okay. Third, and this is important. This is where we'll end. As we're conformed to image, as we're conformed to the image of Jesus, the good worker, as we walk through this world, we see that Christ's work in this world looked like suffering and ultimately dying love. And that reality transforms our experience of the curse in our labors today. The curse, which tells us that we're going to have toil and pain and futility, 
is initially judgment. And yet as we are conformed to Christ's image and as we work in his way, the suffering and toil and pain of work takes on totally new meaning because now it is the suffering and toil and pain that Christ himself experienced when he walked through this world. Our work becomes a platform for love, a platform for Christ-like dying for our neighbor. The most significant intersection of faith and work is not in transformation of the world, but in the suffering potential of your labor. As you work, you have the opportunity to love. You have the opportunity to walk in the way of Jesus. Work is hard. It hurts after the fall. But as we engage in it faithfully and fruitfully, and as we suffer for it, we're made more like the Christ who walked this world perfectly before us. I, I will just close with an with a anecdote from my time as a lawyer. I, for the first couple of years, was racking my brain to try to figure out how changing language in a 100-page document that billionaires were swapping stuff advanced the kingdom of God, right? And I had to, like, get that right every morning before I went into work to make it all cool. It does, actually. And it's beautiful how the work, all of our work, mundane or very altruistic, does advance the kingdom of God in this world. But what I discovered over time was that the, the most beautiful and compelling way in which my work connected to my faith was that I got to love people. I got to love my clients who were busy and stressed out and didn't know how to do this thing that was happening to them. I got to work for my partners who were busy and stressed out and had made, you know, their marriages were falling apart because they had done all that stuff before. And so I could help them by being excellent. And I got to help the younger lawyers to do the same thing. This, the work became meaningful. Being a lawyer is a great profession for you to do. But even more, it became this platform, this opportunity to die for people. You all have that platform and opportunity in whatever your work is. Your work is not the source of your salvation anymore. That's taken care of. Jesus was the good worker, and you get to be conformed to him, and he loves you, and work matters. But as you work in this world, you get to be like Jesus and love people in and through your labors. And there is nothing more beautiful you can do with your life. Whether you're a mom suffering over young children, or you're a high-powered banker, or you're a plumber, or you're a student, or you're a silly pastor who gets to talk for 30 minutes every week. Christ loves you. He calls us into the pattern of his work. He is the good and faithful worker. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that even in our instincts to work, there are signposts to your gospel. God, we confess that we do bounce between despising our work and looking in it for our identity and meaning and purpose. And we know that's the result of the tragedy of the fall, and we know that we participate in that and contribute to it. And so we rejoice that you have sent Jesus to save us, to fulfill the work that we were called to do, to show the way that we are called to walk, and to comfort us and be with us as we experience the pain and sorrow of life in a fallen world. God, help us to love, equip us to love, send us out with joy to die 
for those for whom we work and with whom we work. And in all that, may we show them Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in, his, in your name. Amen.